welcome to another edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. Some good news. I am touching wood all of the time that I say that on the COVID front. The numbers do seem to be improving overall, although still a few hot spots remain. And we're making some progress on finding out exactly where this virus actually came from in the very first place whether it did come out of a lab and how best to fight it. So we have gone to a local expert with international expertise, if I could put it that way. Jason Kinderchuk, um, a Saskatoon boy originally, works in uh, Manitoba, but has been home in Saskatchewan for a year at Vito Intervac, which is really becoming the institute, which is the heart of, uh, of research here in this country. He is an assistant professor in the Canada Research Chair in Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases, or more specifically, Jason, and correct me if I'm wrong, in Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Reemerging Viruses. Yeah, that's got my title. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is correct. it's a very long title. How did you get interested in this? Uh, yeah, listen, I, you know, I, I'm 44. So I, I grew up kind of in a period when the hot zone and the movie outbreak came out. And, and I think anybody that had, you know, any interest in, you know, kind of, the, you know, the killer virus and the potential kind of game changer uh, yeah. bought into that hook, line and sinker. So for me, it, it, it was something that, that I really kind of gravitated to. Never thought I would be in a position to be working in this area. Um, yeah. I still wake up each day kind of mystified that, that I get to do what I do and, and certainly work with the people that I have. Um, but uh, it, it is something that, that constantly is on my mind. And, and I think, um, you know, having read about it and then having faced it are two different things. And, and I think yeah. that's changed my perspective so much. You, you're, I heard you tell this story, so please tell it again, which is in your work, you have traveled to West Africa. And because you were going there, you had to be vaccinated against Ebola. And that that is a live vaccine. And you're going to explain the difference between that and what we're all putting in our arms at this point. And that it's so powerful. You have to be care. You, you even have to ex abstain from sex because you might I don't know, uh, infect your partner with a, with a vaccine? I don't get it. Explain. Yeah, it's a fantastic question, right? So I, I've been through this a couple of times because I've been vaccinated for smallpox because of the work that I do and then as well right. for, uh, for Ebola. Uh, the, the Ebola vaccine uh, it was developed in Winnipeg. Uh, it actually utilizes a, a virus uh, we call VSV, it's a vesicular stomatitis virus. Um, but it's a live virus. So even though it doesn't cause disease, uh, when you actually get the vaccine, it's able to create more copies of itself. And one of the issues that there is with a live virus is that a live virus can go to many places uh, within your body. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what, one of the issues that we always face is, listen, if, if you're getting vaccinated with a live virus, you have to think twice about, uh, about whether or not you can still, uh, you know, have sex or, or regular contact with, with your partner right. or others. How um, but it's it's part of, it's part of the game. It's you know I think to me I look at this and say uh, you know these are the things that I can do to not only protect myself from getting infected mm -hmm. but more so to protect others. And that's I think is part of being a Canadian is you want to look at this idea of protecting your neighbors and those around you. And it, to me, it's the simplest thing you can do. We are our brother's keepers. That's for sure. It's it's how we see the world. What else? Like the the vaccines that we're all getting now in all these different forms, they are not live. They are not. So one of the things that we've looked at is this idea of moving away from live vaccines. And the reason being, um, for, for the average person, the average individual, 
your immune system will be able to, uh, you know, to deal with that live vaccine very well. You won't have any sort of uh, long-term issues uh, or concerns. But when we deal with people that are immunocompromised or immunodeficient, now mm -hmm. we're in a different territory because your immune system may not be able to fight off that infection. The virus is able to create copies of itself. Now maybe you're actually pushing that threshold to where somebody could actually get disease. So when we look at a disease like COVID-19, where you already see that people that get the most sick or have highest risk of disease are the people that can't get a live vaccine, well, now we have to try and develop a therapeutic that is going to be able to, to be utilized by, by that population. So the current vaccines that we use basically are, are providing the blueprint for a very specific piece of, of the virus to our cells. So it's kind of like you get something from Ikea. You know, you get that box, you open it up, there's a, a blueprint that tells you what to do in the instructions. You have all the pieces to create what you want as the final product, but you have to put it together. Um, that's what these vaccines are, that it tells our cells, here's what you need to do. Here's the blueprint. You create what's needed to create that immune response. And once you generate that immune response, hopefully now it's going to last for a long period of time, but you're not going to create any actual virus. Okay, is that what the MNRA vaccines do? And is that separate from a Johnson & Johnson? Well, they're actually very similar, right? So when we look okay. at the mRNA vaccines, or we look at, at the adenovirus vaccine, so Johnson & Johnson, or, or as well, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine, yeah. they, they both are providing those blueprints, but in a little bit different form. So the mRNA vaccines basically are the exact kind of prior step before you produce a protein. So they tell your cells, this is the exact blueprint you need to do. Um, the mRNA or the uh, adenovirus and uh, you know, the AstraZeneca Johnson Johnson ones are a little bit different. They're giving you information in the form of DNA, um, but there's a secondary step where basically your cells take up that DNA, they have to produce RNA, then they have to produce protein. The advantage for the adenoviruses over the mRNA vaccines are that they're more stable. So but, you know, for people like myself that work in low and middle income regions, resource limited areas, even thinking about northern regions of Canada or underserved mm -hmm. communities, these vaccines are much more stable. So we're able to get those out and dispense them without having to have the same sort of requirements for refrigeration. So same endpoint with what we're providing to the immune system, just a little bit different mechanism of how we get there. When everybody hears, you know, we're going to go in and muck around with your DNA, uh, <laughs> it creates some questions in people's minds. You hear that from those that are uh, particularly hesitant. I, you know, I get a lot of emails from, from family members and, and texts from friends, you know, long past <laughs> from high school that, that ask me the same thing, saying, well, what, what are these? And, and then we're talking about sure? people that, well, yeah. And, and, and I think part of it is because, you know, we've heard for so long that going through designing drugs, designing new therapeutics takes a decade and about a billion dollars. To do. Okay, so that, that's kind of our average for moving from bed to bedside. Well, we've already shown that in the last year, you can do this in about 12 months or less for a brand new virus. From a scientific standpoint, that's amazing. It will, this will change the face of public health in regards to our ability to respond to, to different uh, outbreaks and different diseases. But for the public, we haven't necessarily provided that messaging to say, oh, by the way, there's been about a decade or longer of research behind the scenes that occurred for us to get to this point. So you're seeing kind of the, the abridged uh, you know, last section where we move to the clinic and move it out to the public, but you're not necessarily seeing that first part that's actually taking years of, of toiling away. Um, this will, will change the space. And I think for us, you know, when, when I think about infectious diseases, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with brand new emerging infectious diseases each year. 
Um, yeah. COVID is one of many that, that we will continue to face. So having these technologies is very, very important for us, but we have to provide that next messaging to say, these are all the reasons why they're safe and as well, why we actually need to vaccinate one another. So that was the issue and Operation Warp Speed was, okay, let's throw a lot of money at this and, and make it happen. But it, it did. It's miraculous that, that a vaccine came so quickly, but it's still in the uh, early stages. None of these vaccines have actually been approved. They're on an emergency basis. Uh, so question mark there, but obviously you're confident that we're past working out most of the kinks. I, I think so, right? And, and I think again, we, we have to also look at this from, you know, from a scientific standpoint, we talk about you know, risk assessments all the time, right? right. So what, what, what are we thinking about in terms of risk? When we look at COVID, you know, we know that especially a place like Winnipeg right now, we're seeing, you know, you know a plus 15% uh, positivity right. rates, we're seeing a lot of people ending up in the hospital. So if we have vaccines, even things like AstraZeneca, where yes, there are some concerns for, for very specific demographics for that vaccine, we look at the overall risks, the risks are far, far lower than the risks of catching COVID and ending up with severe disease across all age groups right now. In def different areas of the country, maybe that's changed a little bit. So maybe mm -hmm. that risk is now a little bit different. So the mRNA vaccines, we haven't seen any big concerns with millions of people now that have been vaccinated. Um, maybe there is more of a push to go that route than utilizing those adenovirus vaccines um, so we, we have to look at it in that stage. And also we have to be transparent with the public. Um, I think I, that's I the issue. Problem. Yeah. I mean, if, if instead it was right back to the beginning with the masks, oh, don't wear masks. Anybody who did five minutes of reading could understand that was being said because they didn't want to run the medical professional short of equipment. Just tell me that I'm okay with that. I'll get a scarf and put it over my face. And, and you know, what, what got so complicated, I mean, I, I was in Kenya at the time in, in early January 2020 for, you know, kind of the first three weeks of, uh, of the month. Mm -hmm. So things were really taking off in China. We had a concern now that cases were getting into Europe. Um, and we started to hear about this debate about masks. Well, part of the information that was coming out of that point was based off what we saw with the original SARS coronavirus and MERS coronavirus. Neither of those two varies, uh, viruses uh, transmit very widely in community settings. So healthcare settings in very, very close contact close proximity between people, we saw a lot of transmission. But yeah. out in the regular public, we didn't. And that was part of where that information was coming from, was the fact that it was our experience told us this, but you know what? We learned very quickly that, in fact, this virus was very, very different. Science, unfortunately, changes on a dime. And I think the public is seeing this for the first time with, you know, the, you know this is why I've you know, lost a lot of hair in the last few decades, is <laughs> uh, we, we have, you know, science changes literally overnight. And with COVID, hour by hour. So I think the public is for the first time seeing how quickly uh, information changes and, and how quickly the messaging has to change. I mean, just this week, to your point, uh, a, a question now about uh, whether this is exchanged or spread with droplets or aerosol. And if it's droplets, well, maybe the masks are that key distances, but if it's aerosol, then masks are more important if the if it goes out like this, what, where are we on that thinking? <laughs> if there <laughs> is a chasm that I think has divided the scientific community during COVID, it probably has been the, the droplet versus aerosol uh, debate. Yeah. And I think part of it is uh, we, we have different positions and certainly different disciplines that are coming in to say, here's our expertise and here's what, uh, what we have you know, kind of you know, gleaned from all the information out. I, I kind of try to sit as a centrist. That was an, I think 
that really the jury is out on either of those two mechanisms being the primary. It's likely a contribution of both, depending on a lot of environmental variables. So where are you sitting? What, what type of setting is it in? How sick is, is the person? Um, we will get a better sense of that. But I think to me, it's about the, the, the principle of precaution. So yeah. let's assume both and do everything we can to try and mitigate all those concerns at source. Let's not try and put ourselves into a, into a specific trench and, and, and argue that point of labor that let's accept that it probably is either of those two situations and our best uh, mechanism right now is to appreciate both. The other information that emerged this week uh, was of course that at the beginning that, that this uh, virus came from a wet market and then those that said, no, we think it came from the Wuhan lab, they were dismissed as crazies. Now there's um, increasing evidence that perhaps it's it was lab-based. Does Is that information crucial? Um, and I guess this is why people are mad at the, the Chinese government on this, in terms of how we react and how we treat, because if it, if it transmits between uh, you know, animals and humans, that's one thing. If it came out of a lab, that's another. Yeah, so, no, I, I think I certainly go back to this idea that at the end of the day, we're, we are, I think, are probably 99% confident that this virus spread through zoonotic means. So it originally was found probably in a bat and was able to spill over into other animals. Now, the, the interesting aspect is whether or not there was a, a potential lab. We don't yeah. know. And, and I think the question is going to be, will we ever truly know what happened? And I think that's, that, that's a big debate. I think, again, we're going to see you know, people on either side of the aisle saying, this is 100% what we think, and there is no intermediary. Um, does it make a difference right now yeah. for the pandemic? I don't think it does. We, to be fair- We're not we in to, how we treat or how no, we react. No, we, we have to get COVID under control. Now there's a bigger question, which is, listen, the, the virus is probably still circulating out in nature uh, amongst mm -hmm. animals. So it's pivotal for us to figure out what is actually going on because when we think about this idea of, of disease eradication and certainly uh, uh, you know, disease uh, uh, elimination, um, we have to think about the idea of trying to stop it at the source. So having that information of where the virus originated from um, will actually allow us to be able to say, okay, you know what, if we're seeing it in bats and it's this specific type or species of bat, that starts to tell us how to maybe inform again public health policy or strategies for people that live close to those types of animals. Um, does it change tomorrow? No. Will it change the long run of where we go with this? 100% it will. Okay, because that's the issue, this whole question of gain-of-function research, um, which is was certainly being in part funded by the U.S., and I think maybe even Canada through, uh, you know, because of our work with the, the Institute there, we have to have that discussion as a, a society about whether or not we think that research is important and we should be funding it. What's your view from the scientist point of view? So gain-of-function research is, is really interesting, right? So I, I spent the better part of uh, seven and a half years at, at NIH in the U.S. Um, it was a time when uh, gain-of-function research was, you know, was largely banned, uh, that you had to right. you know, constitute it as well as possible uh, if you were going to do any, and it was largely frowned upon because of this concern of what happens if you make a virus more transmissible? What if you take an influenza virus and you turn that into something that now actually is a public health threat. So there was a lot of, of debate about what to do. And certainly the NIH relaxed some of those rules. And part of it is because, you know, there was still this question of 
what are viruses going to do next? Because when you think about historically, viruses have been around a lot longer than we have. They certainly know the terrain much better than we do. So they are able to adapt very, very quickly and change on, on a dime. Um, how will that impact public health? So if I, you know, all my work on Ebola, what happens if there is a change in Ebola that makes it more transmissible mm -hmm. or makes it more virulent? And what if there is our ability to better predict what those changes are going to look like so that if we start to see that from a genomic standpoint, oh, there are, you know, X, Y, and Z changes in the virus that are telling us that these types of changes might be coming maybe that will actually help us with informing public health or designing better therapeutics or designing uh, more tailor-made vaccines. So there is, there is a, a, certainly a question that comes along with this of saying, how do we balance that interest, mm -hmm. that importance from a public health standpoint, also by ensuring that there's oversight and transparency so that all the work that's being done is available in the public sphere? So that people understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. That it's not behind closed doors. That the, you know, the work that we're doing in BSL-4 or BSL-3 is not some faraway place. That people don't actually appreciate um, you know, or, or are able to appreciate what is going on. So I think that's part of it is, again, is, is educating the public as far as what we're doing and why we're doing it. And not just trusting that people look at us and say, oh, yes, we 100% trust what you're doing. Just yes, whatever you say, because that's the problem. I mean, it, this funding was against the rules in the U.S., and it was done sort of, if, if, if the stories, the current stories uh, this week are true, it was funded uh, surreptitiously almost. And I think that that's the other big question is that, you know, we're, regardless of where it came from in China, do we want to see this kind of research being done led by a communist government that is engaged in some pretty reprehensible behavior. Yeah, and, and it is it is a question, right? And, and I think one of the issues that we face, and, and COVID has certainly, I think, ignited this, this in our minds, or should have ignited this in our minds, is that we are now, whether we like it or not, we are a globalized society. So to be fair, exactly. when, when a virus emerges in one area of the world, it is going to affect everybody around the globe, regardless of whether or not we want to treat ourselves as being isolated or not. Ebola in West mm -hmm. Africa is a perfect example. It, listen, we, that virus did not do very well outside of West Africa in regards to infections in either right. Africa or Europe. But when you look at the toll, the economic toll that that virus had, um, and it killed really, you know, it, it, it infected a lot of people, killed you know, 12,000, 13,000 people arguably from, from that have been recorded. Um, the economic tolls affected everybody. So we have to appreciate that now anything that emerges, there is going to be massive consequences and, and we have to be prepared as well as possible. I think when we go back and there are bits and pieces of this that are being looked at already, but we're going to kind of need a 9-11 a style commission to figure this out. Not so much, I don't think, to point fingers. I mean, there will be that. It's, a, it's the whole uh, virus has been politicized. But to really figure out how we respond, I mean, we didn't we didn't have appropriate gear here. We were we didn't have PPE. We didn't know what to do. Like we need as a society, both domestically and globally, a way to respond to this. So we're not running around with our hair on fire for 12 months trying to figure out what the hell to do. 100 percent. And one of the issues that we face again is this idea that viruses are circulating and, and moving through wildlife, moving through animals all the time. Um, the problem for us is this, the, the yeah. idea of predicting 
when the next one is going to emerge. And that's really where I think we're still in infancy. We're doing a lot of surveillance work. For yeah. People, groups like myself are going out in the wild and, and, and trying to look for these viruses. But we've been doing it in a way where we are just randomly sampling. So now we actually have to move towards a, a, a I think, a more systematic type of surveillance network and a better reporting system so that when we start to identify uh, these types of viruses, there's an openness within the global public health community and research community to talk about these things and, and truly be prepared. I mean, that is the issue because that the, that's where the difference, I guess, and where it originated comes from, which is, and I know this is the work that's being done at Vito Intervac for a long time, is that you, you got to look at the animals too. Yeah. <laughs> you can't just look at, at human beings. Um, but, you know, we, we heard of these cases. I don't know whether it was made up that dogs and cats were transmitting if they were some per person's personal pet and went and sat on grandma's lap, it was not good news. No. Is that true? <laughs> so it, it is to an extent, right? And this is the issue with, with certainly with coronaviruses. Um, coronaviruses uh, are, are certainly not monogamous, right? So they, they like to move between animals and, and certainly between yeah. species. COVID-19, uh, certainly we've gotten a, a picture of that, right? We've seen chimpanzees and gorillas that have been infected. We've seen large cats and zoos that have been infected. We've seen cats and dogs infected. We know mink certainly are a big issue for us because not only can they get infected, but they can transfer the virus back to us. So this complicates everything because now when we think about control of the virus, we have to think about ourselves, certainly in transmission from human to human, but we also have to appreciate that there's this other arm of human to animal transmission. And when we think about where this virus is, we have to appreciate that while it's still circulating out in animals, there still is that possibility that it could change or it could mutate again. And now mm -hmm. we see something that's more concerning. So we have to be prepared. And I think the issue for me is, as a scientist is that we certainly talk a lot about being prepared. We talked about this post-SARS. We talked about this post-2009 flu, post-Ebola, post-Zika. We yeah. always stay interested for about a year. And then you start to yeah. see the funding dries up and we move on to the next thing. But we have to have sustainable funding to do this. And we certainly have to appreciate again that this work can't just be conducive to only being done in Canada. We have to be able to send our researchers out globally to different regions mm -hmm. to help actually, uh, you know, counteract viruses. Do you suppose the Chinese will ever let people in to see what was going on? I mean, the one Chinese scientist that worked at that lab that left and now lives in the United States, she is definitive on this, that it, it came from the lab and she knows the kind of research that was done. The safety standards weren't being met. You know, it's a great question, right? So I, I've worked in, you know, in certainly some high containment labs in the past and in, in, in BSL-4 labs. I've worked in the U.S. and Canada. I know the scrutiny that, that we went through uh, to, to get into those labs, the background checks, the certainly the, the yeah. early psychological exams. Um, the oversight is amazing. And that's where I think I still look at the system and say the system actually is done very well. When we look at, at spillovers of, of really nasty viruses out of those uh, types of laboratories to the public, it, it's happened very, very infrequently. I kind of look at it as like the safety in, in you know, nuclear power. Yes, we've right. had some bad events, but when we look at the totality of how many nuclear reactors there are around the world, actually it's been very safe. BSL-4 and BSL-3, it's been the same thing. What we have to do again, I think, is reduce some of the mysticism of these labs. Um, right. People still see this from the, you know, the idea of the, you know, the US military labs and outbreak and all these movies that talk about the exact labs and China syndrome. 
yeah, we, yeah. let's open it up and show people, listen, this is what we do. This is how we do it. Here are all the oversights that we have. And by the way, these are the international collaborations that, that we participate in right. and, and keep it open. I'm hoping your generation of scientists will do that and, and demystify and not, you know, over mystify because, you know, we're all becoming armchair experts by, uh, you know, reading Twitter and all of That's not a good approach, right? I mean, no. we really need facts. Well, listen, I, I keep saying to people, I, I'm a simple guy, right? So I have to, I have to think about things in very simple terms. Um, I, I, you know, if I can appreciate a lot of this stuff, I, I certainly think that, that everybody across the globe can also have the same rudimentary understanding that I have of, of what's going on and, and why we're doing these things. So let, let's appreciate that. Let's appreciate that, that people are on the same playing field <clears throat> and we need to ensure that, uh, that, that people are educated on, on what is going on, what the situation is and why we're doing the work that we're doing and why it's important to, to their lives and, and their family and, and friends. Okay, now to this end, let me ask a couple of questions on what we are learning at present from the UK and uh, well, you know, other places, Australia and some, in terms of reactions, Israel, where you've got a population that's pretty much fully vaccinated. And then what we can learn from the crisis that we're witnessing in India right now, are there key messages coming to you from both the sides of that coin? Yeah, there are. I, listen, I, I think that, you know, certainly looking at the situation in Canada, you know, Man you know I don't want to put Manitoba on, uh, certainly in the spotlight right now, but they're, they're in a rough position. That um, they, they are seeing the inevitable yeah. surge that we didn't want to see. But, you know, what can we learn? Well, the UK and Israel also had very, very bad, uh, you know, uh, turns in, in, in their third waves uh, in, uh, you know, in, in late 2020. What, what, what were they able to do? They're able to get it controlled through restrictions and vaccination. So if you can get people vaccinated and if you can get restrictions in early enough, you actually can fight back against this virus and fight back very, very well. When we get to other regions of the world, this is a bigger question because, you know, when we look at, at certainly resource limited settings, how do you combat a virus when you don't have enough vaccine to get out to a community and where you have a lot of people that are living uh, well below the poverty line? That can't mm -hmm. necessarily just take a day off work or can't undergo restrictions because that is a life-altering event. Um, those are the events that, that we have to now appreciate that, listen, we, when this pandemic will be over when we stop transmission across the globe, not just in, in North America or Europe. So what, what do we do now? Well, now it's about us trying to contribute whatever we can to try and, and, and limit transmission. Uh, when you look at Argentina, you look at Chile, you look at Brazil, you look at India, um, we need to get vaccines out to these regions. We also need to be able to provide whatever support that they need from a diagnostic standpoint, from a personal protective equipment standpoint, um, to get them through the situation they're in and, and appreciate, again, that as long as the virus is transmitting, there is still the opportunity for it to change and for the tide of, of the pandemic again to turn. So it is in our best interest and everybody's best interest to try and get this pandemic ended as quickly as possible. And does it does it make sense in your mind? And I'm not asking you to get political, but just in a, in a in a real world, like when we know India is bad, is it a good idea to stop flights from India? If we know China is bad, stop them. Yeah. So th this is such a great question, right? And, and when we think about this idea of, of new variants, so you know, B one six one seven from India was a fantastic example. 
Um, we now yeah. have a lot of data to support that it is actually very transmissible. It's probably along the lines of B117. Well, what we have to think about is if you actually allow that virus to start to integrate or, or be introduced into an area, um, there is a possibility it's going to outcompete the circulating virus and you're going to end up in a position where you have a lot of people showing up in a hospital. So if you're able to stop that initial introduction, you actually kind of counteract that ability for the virus to do what it wants yeah. to do. So yes, early restrictions and, and early uh, uh, flight uh, bans can work very well. The problem we get into is once you actually have that local spread established, now additional introductions are probably not going to make much of a difference in terms of how far the virus is spreading and how widely it's spreading in Canada. Certainly with B117, <clears throat> there was a point where it was spreading so widely within the community through, uh, through different regions of Canada that additional introductions from other areas of the world we're probably not going to shift the tide that much. So we need to be conscious of this idea that if we act proactively and we act quickly, mm -hmm. yes, we actually can suppress the virus from, from moving. If we're too late in doing that, we can do all the, uh, all the you know, stop gaps that we want to. It's probably yeah. not going to make a difference. Once so once it's landed from or in from India into Toronto, then it doesn't matter to shut down Vancouver because it's about the person going from Toronto to Vancouver. 100%. And, and we saw that with the variants yeah. moving across Canada, right? Yeah. So we, we have to, uh, certainly we didn't know everything about uh, SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, uh, you know, before it, before it emerged. We've learned a lot now, and, and certainly this has yeah. to inform our pandemic preparedness uh, moving ahead beyond COVID. The other thing that still puzzles me greatly is testing. Because I go back and forth between Saskatchewan and, and Ottawa, I test before I go, I test when I land. Um, and then we had you know, millions of, of rapid tests that simply weren't used. Like it only, I don't know, I don't come at this from a scientist point of view, but if you test, you know whether you should go to your room or not. Um, yeah. And it seems to be a good control mechanism. Test the people that are going to work at Walmart because they have to, because they've been deemed essential or nurses or doctors for that matter. Well, and, and part of this is about our scientific limitations, right? So as scientists, we're always taught to appreciate that, you know, we, we want to work within the sphere of what we know and, and try and kind of suppress what we don't know. We don't like to, uh, you know, to assume too much. So with testing, we know that there are some caveats. We know that you can test somebody too early and they may actually have virus, but it's below the limited detection. And a day or two days later, maybe they're going to become positive. But we can't also use that as a mechanism to push us against testing. So ideas yeah. of, of rapid testing that, yes, there, there are caveats with it as far as false positives and false negatives. 100%, we, we appreciate that. But our ability to pick up cases far outweighs the limitations that are presented. And again, I look at, at situations where we have people that, that simply do not want to go to a testing site. They maybe don't have the time to be tested. They don't have the means to be able to go to those testing sites. So the rapid tests give us the ability to move those out to the community and actually provide very quick testing. Schools are a perfect example where exactly. you know, I, I look at us and say, we have these questions. Let's address them directly and utilize what we actually have just sitting on the shelf right the, there was certainly stigma even around the testing at the beginning. It was somehow an admission that maybe you had been in contact and therefore you shouldn't even be out to, some, you know, to a place to get tested. Like we had some very strange thinking about this. 
Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm not a social scientist, so I, I always hate kind of, you know, you know straddling that area, but there, there is a psychology that comes with this, right? And, and certainly, mm-hmm. you know, I think I grew up through, through the HIV and AIDS crisis. Um, it is still a crisis, but when it first emerged in, in the mid-80s, yeah. I remember there was that stigma for people that, that went to get tested. Even now, we know that STDs uh, and sexually yeah. transmitted infections, there is still a stigma about getting tested. So we have to appreciate that there is still that barrier there. For, for a lot of cultures, a lot of uh, demographics within our communities and within our population, we have to remove that. And, and certainly, again, it's about working with the communities to try and reduce that stigma as, as well as possible. Uh, in addition to testing, do we now actually have medicine to deal with this? Are there, are there treatments for this? Yeah, so the, you know, the, this is kind of one of the scourges of, of COVID-19. Developing, I, I don't want to say developing vaccines is easy. But vaccines have, have been developed very quickly for the virus. Yeah. Therapeutics are very, very different because now you have to think about the idea of when are you or where are you designing that therapeutic for? Is it for people that are initially infected and you're trying to provide something that's going to counteract the virus? Or is it something that is coming late in disease where now it's actually not about the virus, it's about that person's immune system and an overactivation of the immune system that's making them sick. So you have to design the therapeutic for what you're actually treating. And that makes it much more difficult because your window for being able to provide that therapeutic is likely very small. When we think about influenza, influenza is a perfect example. We've known about influenza for you know, 1918 onwards. Um, right. How many therapeutics do we have for influenza? Not many. So it, it is not easy. And this is not because of a lack of trying. We have thousands of labs around the world that are trying to, to create therapeutics. It's that it's extremely difficult to get something that is going to be able to suppress uh, the virus at the right period of time when people are showing up sick or when they test positive. So I, I think from the standpoint of people that have severe disease, we're doing actually quite good. Corticosteroids have changed the tide of, of fatalities for people that were showing up with severe disease. So that's yeah. been very good. But we need to be able to have something that treats people before they get to that point. Um, I think we'll see things that, that, that will certainly get introduced over the next, probably the next you know, months to years. Um, but it, it is not going to be at the, at the same speed as what we saw with, with vaccine development. Uh, I've read a couple of interesting articles uh, in the last week, so I'm just going to throw it out at, to you and see if you have a response. That One of the articles suggesting that dementia and Alzheimer's may be an autoimmune disease, uh, so it's about the immune system, and then the other report, which has to do with the impact of the virus on seniors that more than a third of those who it it was the most common condition of those who died amongst our seniors in the old folks homes wherever they were but a third of the deaths are are related to people with dementia alzheimer's and if that is an autoimmune thing then do we have to look at this very differently oh 100 right and and i think part of it is certainly trying to figure out whether or not there's causation with the correlation. So there's always this idea that, listen, we can take two events and they may correlate perfectly, but we don't see an overlap. So do we actually have something that suggests that, you know, there is a differential pathogenesis or type of disease within people that have, you know, Alzheimer's or have dementia as compared to to others that don't? I I think we're still, again, we're at a a very much an infancy in our understanding of this, certainly with autoimmune. we're getting a better idea of what this looks like. But also we have to appreciate that, to be fair, when we think back to those initial cases at the end of 2019, 
in, in Wuhan. Those people came out of the hospital, you know, largely end of January 2020, early February 2020. We're now talking about, you know, not really that much over a year of time where we've actually been able to get data from those first patients and, and, uh, and those first people that recovered. So our understanding right. of, of what this looks like it is still very early. I think we're going to get a lot of information. The, certainly the animal work that's being done is going to help inform um, our understanding of, of what this disease looks like. But science takes time. Uh, we, we've learned more about this disease than we have for any other disease in, in the same time frame. Uh, yeah. But it, it, can, it can't come fast enough, right? So I, I think, you know, stay tuned. In the weeks and months moving ahead, we, we certainly will have more, uh, more answers and certainly a lot more questions. The the other statistic, and I think this was collected by Stats Canada, is 89% of all of the people that died had a comorbidity. So we have to look at that and say, you know, was it people with lung problems? Was it people with heart problems? Do we know anything on that? Are there any trends? Yeah, we're, we're seeing trends, right? So certainly, uh, you know, people that have, uh, you, know, uh, you know, certain disorders that lead to immunosuppression or immunodeficiency. So people that have you know, have ongoing cancers, people that have uh, COPD, people that have type 1 diabetes, um, even pregnant women, we know that there are these underlying issues with, with immunity that can lead to essentially exacerbated disease. So the virus is able to cause uh, more, more severe responses. Um, trying to figure out where the commonality is amongst all of that is very difficult. So is there a specific portion of the immune system uh, that is responsible for this under, you know, under all of these different conditions. And if right. there is, does that actually help guide us in regards to not only our, our public health uh, restrictions and our public health recommendations, but also therapeutic development? So I, I think certainly we've known for a long period of time that there's this link with comorbidities. Now trying to better understand how this looks across different age groups and different demographics will actually help us tease apart how we can utilize this to, to better protect people. If that stat is true and people have comorbidities, then it makes sense that there are more of those the older you are and fewer of them the younger you are. So it it has raised the question, you know, should we be giving 12-year-olds vaccines when we haven't given older folks their second one yet? Yeah, such a great question, right? So but what, what do we understand? Well, we have to look at also what we're learning in, in real time. So certainly, as we're seeing B1617 and other variants that, that are moving through our populations, we have to appreciate that, listen, the virus is still there. Um, mm -hmm. We also now are getting better information about people that have been vaccinated, in particular in those in, in uh, senior and elderly groups, how their immune systems look, how, how do their immune systems respond? And I think there is actually a push now to say, we actually need to get second doses out to those people because you know what, right. they still are ending up in the hospital, even if they don't live in congregate settings. Um, yes, we may have been able to reduce fatalities there, but we still have a lot of people in, in older age groups that are showing up. So certainly it does, but we have to appreciate as well underneath all of this, that until we're able to suppress transmission in all groups, the virus is still gonna be able to move through communities. So yes, we, we can forego, I think, getting kids vaccinated um, to, to try and get more people protected, uh, if that's at least what, what the data is suggesting that we do. But we also have to appreciate that kids are still going to need to get vaccinated because we have to stop that transmission chain. So um, yeah. it, it's all about adapting to, to what the data is telling us as we move uh, vaccines out to, to the community. I think Moderna was announcing yesterday or this week that um, 
they're doing testing now on children sort of six months to 12. They're at that end. Do you, I don't know. That's, that's one of the things that gives me pause, um, you know, vaccinating a kid. I know, I know we do it for other diseases, but we don't seem to know enough about this. Do we really want to vaccinate six month olds? It's, it's a great question, right? And I think the, the way that I look at it, listen, I've got a two and a half. So, uh, you know, myself and the much smarter Dr. Kirchhoff in my household have talked about this many times, but well, yeah. where do we sit in this? Um, it, it's uncomfortable because certainly we don't have that same amount of data as we've had for the influenza vaccines or, or MMR or other vaccines that, that we see getting, getting introduced to kids. Um, but we also have to appreciate that kids are still ending up sick. And certainly there are some kids that end up with, you know, probably life-changing complications from the disease. It mm -hmm. certainly is, is a minority of the population a very, very small percentage, but we have to appreciate that that doesn't mean that it's zero. So to me, I look at that aspect and say, um, I, first of all, I wanna make sure that the people around us are protected. So people that are vulnerable or who can't get vaccinated, um, I don't want my child to be the, the reason that they ended up getting infected. Right. Um, but I also wanna ensure that my kid is protected. Um, I, I don't wanna find out after the fact that had we gotten her vaccinated, um, that, that she wouldn't have ended up with long-term life-altering so I, I look at that and, and certainly we want to have data to support safety. Um, I, I think that again, the transparency is helping with, with everything that we're getting introduced to on a daily basis. We have to kind of you know, get, it, get away from the clutter and the noise uh, of, uh, you know, of, of groups that, that are talking about things that, that, that they don't truly know about uh, for the vaccine. Yeah. Um, but we have to look at the data and say, yes, is it safe? And how do we ensure that, that kids are, are kept safe? when they, they do get vaccinated. So in terms of the testing that's going to come, the next round will be the impact of this vaccine on all of us of any age, but certainly on kids. I mean, right now we seem to be testing for efficacy, but are we also testing for what's it doing? Again, it's kind of back to that DNA question. You're putting something into your body. Are, can we do that in real time yeah. or does that have to come later? No, we're, we're actually doing that in real time. So, you know, we're really, one of the ways that we can look at this is, is the clotting issue with, with AstraZeneca, right? Right. So all that was basically based on, on post-approval, uh, um, uh, you know, safety monitoring and safety testing. So it's kind right. of what we refer to as phase four clinical trials. So it's that post-licensure uh, safety testing that, that we continue to do. So as people recognize adverse events, those will get reported. Um, and, and to be fair, oftentimes, there may not be any causation that's linked. There's just a correlation. Somebody, you know, uh, yeah. dies in a car accident or they, they have a, a dizzy spell. That gets reported, but it's ongoing monitoring. So for us, that's important because it's going to provide us with that long-term data uh, of what we're seeing as millions of doses are, are getting dispersed across the globe and certainly into different communities and, and different populations. Is that information being uh, shared I guess amongst between and amongst the drug companies, and then between and amongst provinces, countries, different departments. Like, has that opened up? It it, it has. So that, that again, the, the real time uh, sharing of data uh, for for COVID nineteen has been phenomenal, right? So when we look at at what we're seeing right now, we've never seen this type of sharing before. Certainly, I mean, a lot of data that we're seeing right now from from different vaccine companies uh, and in different therapeutic companies have actually largely come from press releases. So even before any data has been publicly released as a report or as a, a publication, we're seeing people that are putting out a press release that's saying, here's all the data that we have so far. 
Um, so that transparency will, will, will certainly continue. I think it's going to increase over time. We always have to provide context for what it means, right? right. I think that, that's the important part that I think maybe we failed a little bit on is we've, we've talked a lot about you know, what, you know, whether the data is good or bad, but we haven't talked about the context of what the data necessarily means. And I think we need to do a better job of that with, with the public as, as we move through this. Do we know today whether we can mix and match and whether mix and matching is okay? Yeah. So the, you know, listen, this is the million dollar question, right? Um, <laughs> is it ever? <laughs> it, 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 it is. And, and I think the data is leaning towards that this is going to, to likely be something that we can do. Scientifically, I think we already kind of address in our minds that, yeah, you know, feasibility probably is going to work. We're getting data right now that, that's suggestive of that. So we, we've seen some data right now saying, yeah, you know what, in senior populations, you get an accentuated antibody response in people that have a mix and match with AstraZeneca and Pfizer. The complication is saying, what does that mean? What does that mean yeah. in regards to protection from disease? So the data, I think, is certainly suggestive that there's something there. Um, I think we still want to wait until we actually see the aggregate data put together from the clinical trials that tells us, is there something significant that we see? Is there an improvement, or at least do we see a similarity with what we already see with the two dose of either AstraZeneca or Pfizer on their own, or the other vaccines? So if you were, and there's lots of people in this boat that had the, um, the AstraZeneca, which, you know, what would you do? Would you wait for your, your AstraZeneca second shot or would you take a Pfizer? Yeah. So I, listen, I've had so <laughs> many questions about this last few weeks. Uh, I bet. Uh, in, in, in a second, I would go with, 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 with the, for myself, the second dose of the AstraZeneca. And the reason I would do that, there's two reasons. One, the second dose of the AstraZeneca, we already see a decrease. In, in inherent risks for, for clotting disorders, right? So now we already know the second dose is, is much safer. The second part is I can look at the data right now and say, oh, by the way, here's the clinical trial data. Here's the real world data that tells me that two doses of AstraZeneca works phenomenally well against circulating strains as well as V117. So I can look at that hard and fast data and know exactly what protection I'm getting, what level of protection. The mix and match data, we don't know yet. We're inferring a lot from the data. It likely is going to work, but I don't have that same confidence yet because I haven't seen the full data set. So that, that's where okay. I still lean back on, on doing what, what we know works. Okay. So before I let you go back to the real world in your lab and save us uh, and get to work today, uh, let me ask you to pretend you were king of the world or prime minister of Canada or whatever you want to be and you could do two things. Um, what would you do in terms of uh, next steps, getting ready for what might happen? I think we yeah. can all assume that we're gonna be living with pandemics for the rest of our lives. Yeah. There's gonna be this one, and then five years, there's gonna be another one. We can't even imagine what it is. So wave your magic wand. What do you wanna see happen? Yeah. yeah, there's two things, right? I mean, one is we need sustainable funding. Uh, for preparedness. Um, we have to learn from the mistakes that we made and we have to appreciate that there were errors that we made in our judgments. What were those and how do we better prepare ourselves uh, for, for, for the next pandemic? So that's a part of it. We, we, we've got to make sure there's sustainable funding for that and we have to ensure that we actually are prepared. That there's a So that we can make some vaccines as well when stuff happens? 100%, right? <laughs> we, have, we have to have that. You know, we yeah. have to be able to, to produce nationally. We, we know that, that we lost out on, on being able to, uh, to vaccinate people quickly and get PPE out to people. 
So, yeah. so we have to ensure that. The second part is um, we also have to appreciate a game. We are globalized, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Yeah. So our preparedness um, also hinges on other regions of the world that have far, far less resources than we are being prepared and adequately prepared with us. If we don't have people protected in, in other areas of the world, um, we are not ourselves protected. So to me, I look at that and say, we need to do a better job of ensuring that we are not looking at this uh, like we did in you know kind of pre-World World, uh, War One, where North America is some isolated entity. Those days yeah. are done. So let's yeah. be prepared globally and, and work with our partners globally. Yeah, and get smart about those decisions at the front end, even when we don't know. Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, we, we are on the side of caution, whether it's one mask or two or three or whatever. I wish we had done that nationally too, in terms of so great to talk to you. Thank you. And I, I feel guilty stealing all this time from you, but, but I think it's really helpful to have somebody who's prepared to be open and, and talk about it. That's your, um, I, I think I'm, I'm hoping that you and your, your colleagues will be able to make that happen and make this more transparent. Well, I appreciate the opportunity and thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, it was really great. So Jason Kindrichuk, I can't, I, I can't read his whole title, but he is the Canada Research Chair in Molecular Pathogenesis of Emerging and Reemerging Viruses. So we're glad you're on the case. You're at the University of Manitoba, but you've spent all this time at Vito and we're very proud of that institution too and the work it's been doing here in Saskatchewan. So great. thank you so much. Thank you. We'll, we'll be back at you. Don't worry. Don't You can't hide from us. We know where you live. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. That's it for this edition of No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen.